Hello and welcome back to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the actions and interests of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today, Oliver Perkovich, is originally from Australia, but is currently living and working in Berlin, Germany, where he oversees the operations and expansion of INGO Skatistan, which he founded in 2007. Since its humble beginnings in Afghanistan, Skatistan has expanded to other countries such as Cambodia, South Africa and Jordan, and in 2022 aims to expand to 20 locations and reach 4,500 students each week. They aim to collect $1.5 million in donations before May 2022 to help reach these goals and are already halfway through. A documentary about Skatistan's work in Afghanistan called Learning How to Skateboard in a War Zone If You're a Girl was produced in 2019 and won a BAFTA and Academy Award. It will soon be available worldwide. So here's my conversation with Oliver Perkovich. I hope you'll enjoy it. So, to get us started, maybe if uh, I'd be just interested in knowing uh, where you grew up. I know you're from Australia, uh, but you've been living in uh, Europe for a long time now. Uh, but I think one of your parents is originally from Germany, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, can you tell me about a little bit about growing up and, and um, like this uh, connection to Germany and how you picked up a skateboard in the middle of, uh, of all this, basically? Cool. So, yeah, I was born in Melbourne, Australia, and uh, I uh, actually grew up in Papua New Guinea from age five to around 10, and then was in Australia again. And uh, yeah, my mum is my mum is German. Uh, my dad basically escaped from former Yugoslavia into Italy and then came on a a boat out to Australia as a refugee in the in the 60s. So both my parents are from Europe. Um, and, mm. uh, I was born in I was born in Australia and I'm Australian and I guess I've ended up in ended up in Europe. And uh, yeah, skateboarding skateboarding came really uh, really early. One of my cousins was a skateboarder in Melbourne, Australia in the 1970s. And okay. um, he skateboarded, I guess, like mid mid seventies or so. And uh, I went around to my um, my cousin's place. Um, just, I mean, it was shortly before my sixth birthday, and I saw the skateboard in the corner of his room, and I asked mm -hmm. him if I could try it out. It was something that completely transfixed me. As soon as I, I, I jumped on it and, of course, I immediately fell off <laughs> really hard. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was really the start. I, I was just like totally hooked. I asked my cousin if I could borrow the board and he said I could have it. And I was like really, really stoked. And we just very shortly after that, we moved to moved to Papua New Guinea. So that was just shortly before my, my sixth birthday. So, okay. yeah, in Papua New Guinea, there weren't so many places to, to skate. There weren't so many, there wasn't so many smooth surfaces uh, around. But uh, funnily enough, as soon as we arrived, Around my sixth birthday, the the hotel that we first stayed in Papua New Guinea before we, we had our house ready, the hotel actually had an empty pool in it. And somewhere oh, nice. <laughs> I had seen people skateboarding 
pulls. So I was like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And all I did was like ran straight into the wall, like (laughs) (laughs) no no chance, no chance at all. I was like, well, I don't understand how they do it, but yeah. So it was, uh, it was really just, um, yeah, like tic-tacking and sort of rolling and pushing those years in, in Papua New Guinea, usually just trying to find like a, a basketball court or some asphalt. I didn't skateboard that much in, in total. And then I came back to Australia. Um, so that was 1980 when I first first had the, had the skateboard. And then uh, 1985, we came back to, back to Australia and um, I went to the movies for the first time. And the very first film that I saw was Back to the Future. And that oh, like okay. blew my mind again. So I was yeah, like, yeah. I have to, I have to skateboard. And that like really, I got out that skateboard, and then I like made another skateboard my myself because my brother's four years younger than me, and I wanted him to like skateboard as well. So the board was the board that I had was like a fiberglass board from the seventies. It was very skinny, mm-hmm. like a banana board, but out of fiberglass. So it was like a pro model from like nineteen seventy three. It had like SGI trucks and like it was a it was a proper urethane wheel. So urethane wheels must have just come out or like shortly um, ar- around that time. And so then when mm-hmm. I made my own skateboards in 1985, I just made this same thing out of wood. I just like traced it out and uh, I bought like some roller skates secondhand and hacksawed them in half and wow. stuck like <laughs> one wheel on each side. And we lived a little bit out of the city, so I was just basically on a farm with a little stretch stretch of concrete and just like skateboarding up and down and like building the first ramps were just like a, a wooden door and a bird cage and like you know roll <laughs> very very basic flat bank. So yeah, that was super the, DIY. <laughs> that was the start of it all, and then getting a. Getting my getting my first wideboard, I actually won it in a in a in a competition. So there was a, the Veriflix team was at a local shopping centre and they were doing demos on like a vert ramp, mm-hmm. and uh, they had a competition for the kids. Like, can you skateboard around these cones? And I could like tic tac around the cones, and I could do like a little cess slide. And I won that. I won that competition. And I won a Veriflex oh, nice. deck, and then I got like the wide, wider wheels. And so this is like a ten-inch deck then. So then I got like what was then, I guess, a modern skateboard for 1985. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, it was like getting secondhand because uh, I was I was still only what 11 years old. So it was pretty hard to just like have money to just to buy a skateboard was like way out of my reach yeah way out of my reach so i got like secondhand pro model decks for like 20 or 30 australian dollars at the time and then i slowly like made my setup a little bit better and that was yeah that 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 was then, the progression. And then just like and then like really wanting my wanting to get jobs and like yeah i started babysitting and i started to like do little odd jobs and that's what I could then uh, try to like buy skateboard skateboard gear. stuff with gear and mm-hmm. keep it uh, keep it going. But it it started to really become a craze in Australia in 1987. So there was just this real wave up, and there were lots of uh, pro tours. So I went to a I saw a pro pro demo in 1985 with 
yeah, Tony Hawk was at it and Christian Hazoy and, you know, I, I had yeah. like a little oh. uh, little 35mm camera and like took extremely bad photos of them where they're just like <laughs> flying in the air and that's all you can see. <laughs> yeah. But, um, awesome. yeah, seeing the – having those pro tours and then skateboarding just really becoming a, a big deal, that was – yeah, it was a, a super exciting time. But oh, sure, um, yeah. I was never a real – really – good skateboarder it was something that i was like very passionate about but all my friends were always like a little bit better than me and always a little bit faster at taking on taking on things so it was something that was just like yeah mm-hmm. i was really passionate about but not necessarily the best yeah you weren't you weren't uh, aspiring to become a, a pro skater or something like that like you it always stayed fun for you and you didn't really try to get sponsored or stuff like that or Yeah, I think I was just realistic about it because even just within that little group of friends that I had, they entered competitions and did quite well, but they were also better at skateboarding than me. And I was I was I was pushing it and just trying to do what I could. I I built like a a six foot uh, ramp as a thirteen year old, um, but it was only eight foot wide, so it was mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it was pretty. Uh, <laughs> pretty hard to skate but um we didn't even have platforms on one side for about six months <laughs> it just sort of went up and no coping wow. no platform so yeah that was i think i was pretty realistic about what my um what my skills Ambitions. skills were yeah. but you know over over time i then Yeah, I try to like get into and do as well as I could. And I, I actually, I skateboarded in a, a few competitions in the mid 90s. So sort of like in my mid mid 20s, uh, there was a, a skate park in mid Melbourne and uh, I, I entered two competitions there and I got like third in like a open division, which was like not sponsored skaters. And uh, I also entered the the Mystic Cup in um, in Prague in nineteen ninety ninety six and uh, yeah then I had like Willie Willie Santos in my run and Rune Glifberg wow. and <laughs> but it was like hey it cost five dollars to enter I'm gonna like enter and they're letting me enter so I'm gonna go for it so yeah it yeah. was I never sure. I wanted to just like push it as as much as I could, but I was always pretty realistic that I was never going to be a professional skateboarder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. And uh, so, so tell me a little bit about um, as you were growing up. So you were skating, and uh, eventually you finished high school. And uh, so I, I understand that you started studying chemistry. Uh, am I not mistaken? Yeah, I did uh, environmental science and there were two streams and there was a biology stream and a chemistry stream and uh, I did then uh, an honors year, which is like a year beyond the, the degree and that's sort of like a track towards doing a PhD. Mm-hmm. I was quite interested in, uh, yeah, actually like getting a job with a environmental organization, like something like Greenpeace, like could I be oh, yeah. a... I was, yeah, interested in um, protecting the environment and, you know, how could I use a chemistry degree to, to do that? But, uh, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't get a job in, in chemistry. I worked, I got a job at a university in more in the social sciences. Um, so it was oh, okay. kind of nothing to do with my background. 
but I took it on and that was in emergency management. So that was all about like natural disasters, floods and fires and how to handle them, how to bounce back from them. What is sure. uh, that, that? That was sort of a, a track that I took uh, work, work-wise. Okay. So I understand you, you, were, you went to Afghanistan with, uh, with your ex-girlfriend at the time. I think you didn't have a job at that time and, and went there accompanying her basically. And uh, eventually on, on site, you started skating with the local kids or something and, uh, and um, started this whole passion project, if I, if I can call it that. But um, so, so just uh, how, how did, uh, how did Skatistan start and, and uh, what were you doing before that basically is my question. Yeah, I was I was doing all sorts of different things. I I started a a bread business just like at a local a local market and then I started to get into making food and mm-hmm. uh selling it wholesale and I I did a couple of I catered a few weddings and I did stuff for like different cafes so that was my own little uh own little business that I was doing on the side apart from like the job at the at the uni and okay. then I I left the uni job and then I actually moved to central Australia and I did did some work in the healthcare system with indigenous people in in central Australia then I just moved over overseas and my girlfriend at the time got a, a scholarship in, in Hungary at Central European University. So then we lived there for a bit and then I was in um, Morocco for a little while and mm-hmm. then she got the job in Afghanistan. I was living in Germany and just sort of trying to work out what I could what I could do. And then uh, eventually, I then went to went to Kabul, and I was looking for a, looking for a job myself. But I brought a I brought a few skateboards with me because maybe other people that also skate like would not bring their skateboard with them. And then <laughs> at least if I could like build a little mini ramp or do something, then at least I could skateboard with somebody else as well. So that was the that was the idea. There was no. There was no idea about like starting an NGO or teaching skateboarding to Afghans or anything, anything mm-hmm. like that. It was just like bring some stuff along. And um, I, I arrived there in wintertime. So there was just like nowhere that you could have skateboarded at all. And as soon as then the I arrived in February um, 2007. So it was like another couple of months until it was like dry enough and I just started to skateboard in, inside the, the guest house compound that we had. And then I started to found some other people that also um, skateboarded and went and found a, found a high school where it was possible to skate at. And then like kids would come around and like be really interested in what was what was going on. And it was fun mm-hmm. to then just like, hey, you know, do you want to try this out? And they'd sort of roll around and it was pretty funny. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we took took some photos and people were, like, pretty uh, pretty stoked on, stoked on that. And I was just, like, really excited that girls were trying to skateboard because I just didn't – I didn't see girls riding bicycles or playing soccer like the boys or doing any activities – And that was like exciting for me. So it was like, oh, maybe there's, you know, some little uh, could do some more, could do some more sessions. So, yeah, I was working on the like a main army base just at a at a cafe Mm -hmm. on the on the base. And then 
in my in my spare time I that was the job that I could get and then in my in my spare time I was just like doing these little skate sessions with some other other people and then there was this group of like 20 some uh, sort of 20 year old Afghan guys that were like really stoked about it and and excited and by them translating it was possible to then go and find other kids and and skateboard together with them as as well yeah and then uh i went to india for a holiday and then i had a a really bad motorcycle accident in india and i broke my i completely shattered my shoulder and i had to go back to australia for surgery and then there Mm -hmm. as i was like recovering from that i was sort of writing down more and more ideas about like how this skateboarding thing could be actually possibly um more organized like yeah yeah. happy to be more organized what could it be done and because i'd been skateboarding in melbourne for so long i know i knew quite a few people like in the industry and a good friend was running black box distribution at the time and so i asked him about support and he happened to be in the US at the time and was like with Jamie Thomas and asked Jamie oh, yeah. directly and Black Box was doing really well in, in 2007. So I guess that was something that, um, yeah, Jamie, Jamie backed. And uh, yeah, Jamie Thomas was like a real superhero to me in, in skateboarding. It was like street skating. Oh, yeah. It was like mid-90s. That was sort of like my time and, you know, Jamie's Jamie's part in... Um, oh, he's a legendary pro skater for sure. Yeah, in the, in the Toy Machine video was like, that was like the video part. Um, yeah. So yeah. that was, you know, to have somebody like that, like backing me at that point, I was like, fuck, you know, if, uh, if Jamie's Dream backing me, true. I better, I better, <laughs> I better really do something. Yeah. And... Uh, so I got some boards uh, through through Black Box, and I tried to like I, I worked on a on a building site to like earn some money to then just go back to Afghanistan and try to like start this thing. I had a we ran a little fundraiser at a friend's bar in Melbourne, and I literally had like two thousand Australian dollars, which is a thousand two hundred euros, and a plane ticket back to Afghanistan, and just try to make it work so yeah. <laughs> it was yeah very very humble very humble beginnings and uh yeah it grew it grew from there just finding some volunteers that wanted to get involved doing the sessions at the finding this empty fountain that was in 2008 that was like really good to skateboard in and mm-hmm. when i was doing these sessions in different places around kabul Quite often, kids would try to run off with, like, a skateboard. So I'd have to, like, chase after them and, like, get the skateboard back. And the fountain was really good because it was, like, a controlled space. And I didn't really allow people to then skate outside of the fountain and I could control the whole situation. And for me, it was was a little bit like a, a science experiment in a way because I didn't want to, like, show them how to skateboard either. I wanted to, like, just observe how they were, like, interacting with the board. And most of the time, the kids would, like, put their foot, like, right onto the nose and try to almost tic-tac like they're just going fakey, but... So I I didn't really, you know, I just let the kids between themselves like talk about it and teach each other and, and try to do things. And I gave the girls more time to skateboard than the boys because the boys had other opportunities that they could do. They could go and play cricket or they could go and fly a kite or whatever. Sure. Girls couldn't 
do these things in Afghanistan and somehow skateboarding was okay because there were no rules around it that they couldn't do it because it was so new. There were rules yeah, yeah, yeah. that were like societal rules that said you shouldn't do that because it's a boy's activity, but skateboarding wasn't seen as a boy's activity because nobody had seen it before. Mm-hmm. And because the girls had more time than the boys, of course they got better at skateboarding than the boys. And that like really confused everybody. It was like, oh, that must be uh, a, a sport for girls because they're better at it than the boys. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but it was a simple thing of like giving them access and giving them time. And, you know, when you have opportunities, things come from them. So that really got me stoked. And I was just like, I don't really know what I'm doing, but this is pretty cool. And, mm. uh, I just kept, I had a little uh, Chinese motorbike and I just like go to these, go to the fountain and try to run these sessions a couple of times a week. And uh, over time, I got to know the kids uh, better. And a lot of them just came from super poor backgrounds. And most of them were like begging on the streets or selling stuff or, you know, Mm -hmm. they weren't in school. And a lot of the, the kids were saying to me, I was going to school, but my parents like pulled me out of school because they want me to just uh, work the whole time. They want me to bring in more money. Mm -hmm. And that was something that I'd heard early on arriving in Afghanistan. And I didn't have any background in international development, but I did a lot of reading before going to Afghanistan. I just read about everything that I could. And a lot of the stuff was about the international development assistance to Afghanistan. And there was a lot of critique from Afghans themselves that was like, why are you telling us continuously what to do? Why don't you just listen to what we want? And um, that really made sense to me because that was the only way that a project could be sustainable. If somebody is coming along and they've got some ideas and they've got some money, it's going to work as long as you've got that money. But as soon as the money runs out, there's no motivation from the local population to keep on doing that or so Mm. the fact that the the kids were like so crazy about skateboarding they're the ones that like were not giving me my skateboard back i was like having to like (laughs) wrestle with them every every time (laughs) okay that was like this is something that the kids want half of the population in afghanistan is under the age of 15 so it's just like this enormous youth demographic Mm-hmm. This is something that makes sense. It sounds crazy to want to skateboard in Afghanistan where there's nowhere to skate, but hey, this is a chance for Afghans to actually say themselves what they want and mm-hmm. uh, nobody listens to the kids, so why not do it? So that also then sure. made me listen to the kids as well when they said, hey, I want to go to school. I was like, well, maybe I can help you get back to school. And I was like, I don't know how to do it, but let's try. Yeah, let's figure it out. It was a matter of just like talking to the parents uh, of the kids and just saying, you know, how does how could this work? And they said, mm-hmm. well, we rely on the income from this kid. Um, can you pay them? If you can pay them to, to skateboard, then, you know, we can, I'll, I'll, I'll let my kid go, go back to school. And I had almost no money at all myself. Mm-hmm. I was like literally living on $20, $30 a week. It was really, really <laughs> going to the market at closing time and bargaining down on potatoes and onions. And it's like, all right, okay, I can give the kids $1 per session. 
Mm-hmm. This is this is something that I could afford, but you got to agree for your kid to go back to school. And so that was the first link to um, education. And the kids yeah, yeah, yeah. went back to school. They became skateboard instructors, and it was really important to have female skateboard instructors for the girls because yeah. I didn't want to be. It would be culture, culturally inappropriate for you know for boys and for girls, boys especially to, uh... over the age of twelve. And obviously, I'm a an older male so i needed to have a female skateboard instructor for the girls to be able to keep on keep on doing it and so that got the first girl back to school mm-hmm. and fazilla was the first first skateboard skateboard instructor and then from there it was sort of like well this is working maybe there could be you know what what what's the next step and what was happening was that the girls could skateboard when they were 8 or 9 or 10 or 11 you know, this was all mm-hmm. in 2008. But as soon as they hit like 12, 13 and entering into puberty, then the parents would just say, no, you can't go and hang out with the boys anymore or, you know, you can't be in this mixed environment. And so that's where okay. I realised, hey, it has to be an indoor space and it has to be a female-only space. Then these girls can keep on skateboarding. They want to keep on skateboarding, but they're not allowed to. So how do we get around this? And yeah. so that led to the whole idea of like, okay, let's build an indoor facility somehow. Let's see if it's possible. And uh, just, yeah, creating a website and getting people to help with different stuff in terms of registering as an NGO and trying to get land and try to try and do all of these things. So the big breakthrough was getting land from the Afghan Olympic Committee and the the whole way that that came about was like a bit of a misunderstanding because I did a I did a had a meeting with the the, pre, the new president of the Olympic Committee. Okay. The old one was like I'd tried lots of times and nobody was uh, receptive at all. Yeah. And then uh, this new guy came in and his son rollerbladed, and so when I was like when I was uh, saying, you know, I want to build this skate park, he thought it was like for rollerblading. And I didn't realize that. I was just like talking about a skate park and this is what it looked like and this is what you do. Yeah. So he was, he just got super stoked because he thought it'd be something that his son would be like really interested in doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he turns up the first day with his rollerblades. We're like, you can't ride the, you can't use those. <laughs> and it's like, oh no, okay. You're, you're the only one that can, can rollerblade in here. It's all right. Special access. Yeah. yeah that was the, the golden misunderstanding. So we, uh, I managed to get support from the, firstly from the um, Norwegian government. So the Norwegian ambassador met with me and I showed him photos of what I was doing and he got pretty stoked on it. Sorry sorry to cut you off, but how how did that connection uh, happen? I I happened to be at a at a bar one one night in Kabul and I met somebody that was working at the Norwegian embassy and I told her what I was doing and she she basically said bullshit you're doing that and I said all right you come out tomorrow and have a look and she saw it and she was absolutely blown away and then she told the told the ambassador and then so that's how I that's how I got that got that meeting mhm and another time I was just in a in a cafe and doing a Skype call with somebody and just saying, hey, I'm just like desperate right now. I need just $5,000 to keep on going. And there was another journalist that was in the in the cafe and he overheard my conversation. And then he gave me a contact to somebody at the Canadian embassy. So then I had a, a contact to them. 
And because okay. I'd already met with the Canadian embassy, then the Norwegian embassy was like also more interested. And then uh, the Norwegian ambassador then organized a lunch and he invited the, the Dan- Danish ambassador and the German ambassador at the time. And so then he pulled those other two countries in. And so with all of those four, Canada, Norway, Denmark and Germany, um, that was sort of like the initial funding for like building that first structure on the grounds of the the afghan afghan olympic committee and uh we there was a a building company that was built uh, based in dubai and they agreed to build the building under cost price so they said that they'll build it to me for two hundred thousand, and that would have normally cost about eight hundred thousand in in kabul at the time and uh, so all of the donors were like wow like how did you do that how did you then build something you know they're all just putting in fifty thousand each or so and then all of a sudden there's this uh, incredible facility that was built super fast and super high quality and uh, we had uh, Schutze from IOU ramps came came out and built all the ramps and I mean he's like the best ramp builder in Europe maybe even the world Mm. so we had this super high quality uh, facility that would we we actually had marble floor marble wow (laughs) because it's just it's super super cheap in Afghanistan the whole like (laughs) It was like 400 square meters, the skate park, and that cost cost 8,000 to do the floor, and that was like a cheap flooring option. And for skateboarding, <laughs> it was like wow. so perfect. So it was oh, just yeah, yeah. super smooth. A little slippery maybe, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it definitely worked worked out. And because we, we also got the kids to wear all safety gear because I was just super scared of anybody hurting themselves, um, yeah, yeah, when yeah. you combine safety gear with marble floor, you basically don't get hurt because you come off, you slide, you're not like, yeah, you're, yeah, you're yeah. not breaking bones. So, sure, sure. It was something that was, yeah, opening opening the the facility in Kabul in in 2009 was, yeah, that was that was the best day of my life. That was incredible. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I think I saw I saw images of that in a short documentary from from back then. I think uh, I don't remember the title of the documentary, but it was like a a short ten minute uh, film uh, uh, shot in like 2010 or 2011, maybe. That's in the that's in the Kabul Kabul facility, um, and that was filmed yeah filmed a little bit after the opening. At the opening, okay. we had uh, Cairo Foster came out, and Kenny Reed came out, and Maysam Faraj from uh, from Dubai, Louis Amenke, um came. Yep, yep. So that was yeah, that was that was pretty that was pretty rad. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, then it all kind of grew, kind of grew from there. Mm-hmm. to ask you just about um starting the, the whole thing uh did you did you ever have any like uh were parents uh, sometimes reluctant to uh, uh have you teach skateboarding to their children especially maybe for the young girls uh, did, did you ever have like uh, 
basically reluctance from their part, uh, not not maybe trusting you, you know, being f from f being an outsider, basically a, a foreigner, and, and especially teaching skateboarding, which is something I guess Afghanistan had probably never seen before, or, or definitely it was we we had to do we had to do a lot of a lot of work to gain the acceptance of the of the parents, and I realized pretty early on that it really can't be seen as something from the West. So yeah. if it's just a skateboard by itself, then it doesn't have any cultural baggage. You know, it's just a board with four wheels. So exactly, I yeah. didn't I didn't show the kids any skateboard magazines. I didn't show them any videos. You know, there was like no Western influences because I knew that that could be then something yeah. that would be, the parents would be like, no way, that's like, This is an influence that I don't want to that I I don't want to have I don't want to expose my my kid to. So I was very mm -hmm. very sensitive to that right right at the start, and we did a lot of things to win the parents over. So, for example, at the opening day, we had a really prominent mullah um, come and talk, and I asked the mullah to like talk about the importance of girls doing sport, and you know he 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 told a told a story about one of the wives of. Prophet Muhammad that was taking part in a running race. And so this is just like perfect. Like they're hearing it from, yeah. from them. It's it's okay for your girls to, you know, to come to come here and, and, and skateboard. So we had to continuously do that background work. And of course, lots of parents were, were not into it and they didn't allow that or their yeah. girls, you know, okay. they'd, they'd come. But the, the secret weapon was that skateboarding is so much fun. And so mm -hmm. the, the, the kids would get home and the parents would say, you can't do that. And they'd cry for days on end until they were allowed back again. So <laughs> it was all about like, how can we make this as safe as possible, as fun as possible, as inclusive as, as possible? So the kids are all mixing uh, together and make sure that there aren't any We don't give anybody any excuses to like shut it down because basically it was pretty magical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's interesting. I, I, it's interesting, especially the the part about um, not uh, showing them too much uh, like uh, of, of uh, skateboarding culture from the West, basically, because maybe that would have uh, turned off uh, some people, as you said. So it probably was the best uh, best option to just bring the skateboard and have them just figure it out on their own so sort of you know kind of guide them through it but not uh, say oh you should do this because like this pro skater in america does it this way or whatever you know and i was i was really stoked on how they were creating their own culture and how they were creating their own tricks and mm -hmm. um you know it sort of didn't really make sense within the whole of skateboarding But, you yeah. know, they're wearing like the, the guys are wearing shower camisas, which is just like the big baggy clothing that's almost impossible to skateboard in because you can't see your feet and you can't see your board. And <laughs> uh, the girls are wearing like all of this colorful like Afghan Afghan clothes. And it was like a big deal for them to like come to the skate school and like see other people. So they were all like trying to like wear their best clothes. And then like oh, yeah. some of the kids were getting into, you know, they could get like these little MP3 players and they'd like skateboard with earphones in the same as like kids were doing all around the world as yeah. well but they're mm -hmm. listening to like a bollywood soundtrack and uh, <laughs> they had all yeah, of yeah. their influences in fashion from iran and from pakistan and from 
you know, Afghanistan. And, you know, it sort of, it became its own like little, its yeah, own culture. skate cosmos, its own skate culture. Mm-hmm. And I understood as, as if that grew and that was like the way that it was seen, then, hey, maybe this is something that we can keep on doing. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what about the, the staff, uh, the people that have, uh, you know, uh, been working, uh, not necessarily today, but especially at the very beginning? H- how did you find people to help out, basically, like uh, educators? And, and uh, yeah, j- I'm just interested in, in hearing how you found people to help you along the way, basically. It, it really started in that fountain with those kids that were like in the streets there. And then when the skate park was built, they actually helped Schutze like building the ramps. And then they became the instructors in the skate park and in the in the classroom. And then mm-hmm. we we started to um, create a few little jobs. And I mean, we, we were only able to afford like $200 a month pay. So we didn't get like people that were super professional. It was just sort of people that were starting their careers and were kind of interested in what we're doing. So we were able to get a couple of a uh, couple of Afghans to to join. And when they saw what was going on, they were really excited about it. So you know, instead of earning five or six hundred dollars a month somewhere else, they would take the job with us yeah. for for less. And because they were stoked about it, their parents weren't weren't stoked on that. <laughs> that was. <laughs> But uh, so that's where it started. And then we had a, we had some international volunteers that would come for six months at a time. And right, we'd okay. set up a guest house and that was sort of like the way that we could afford to do things in an affordable, in affordable way. Over time, okay. we realized like it doesn't make sense to just keep on having these people come in for six months and then leave because it takes like two or three months to get your head around the new job. And then by the time you're starting to get good at it, you, you leave and then you have to you leave, try yeah. to you have to train somebody else. So exactly. that's where we really focused in on how can we have as many national staff as possible. So in Afghanistan, like, you know, really just trying to build up the staff so that they could just keep on going because that was just a more sustainable model. And by the mm-hmm. time it got to 2000 and 15 2016 and we had the skate schools in south africa in in cambodia in in afghanistan we pulled Mm -hmm. all international staff out of all of the projects so it was only national staff and it's just all professional so okay everybody is paid and um you know this is this is then a sustainable model to to keep it going and Mm -hmm. um yeah that that's where we got to. And uh, 2012, so a couple of years before that, we started the, the headquarters in Berlin, Germany. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I, I was just curious to know, uh, because you were in Kabul before that, and what, what made you relocate to at least the headquarters, I mean, to, uh, to Berlin? And why Berlin? Well, we were, we were trying to run a global operation from Kabul. And uh, there was no post box. We couldn't get post. We couldn't get a credit card. We couldn't get a PayPal account. We couldn't, uh, the internet would be dropping out many times a day. Uh, The electricity would be dropping out many times a day. And we were trying to coordinate (laughs) things in Cambodia and South Africa, in 
fundraising globally. We had entities around the world that were in the US, in the UK, in Denmark, in Germany that were doing fundraising as well. And to coordinate that all from Kabul, we needed to have certain staff to do that. And then I mm-hmm. needed to try to attract staff to Afghanistan to then work on that. And it was like only certain people are like ready to come and work in Afghanistan. We hardly could pay anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it just and then the and then the internet doesn't work so it's like yeah, yeah, yeah we yeah. i remember uploading a 2.5 meg photo and it took me seven minutes so it's just like how wow. do you get how do you get work done <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay so we were trying to like do these, you know, like a little zine or do this or that. And like anything that we were doing, it was just um, painstakingly slow. And and certain things were just really, really expensive in, in Afghanistan as well. So mm-hmm. my mum's German. I speak German. We had a whole lot of volunteers in Berlin as well. And Berlin was also a city that I really, I really liked. So it made sense it was, for you to go there. Yeah, it made sense. So there was this. I, I sort of underestimated German bureaucracy. That was definitely a a big um, obstacle, a big obstacle and big learning curve. But it was yeah. it was really cool that we like we did that in 2012, and we also wanted to be on a, a pretty similar time zone to Cambodia and South Africa and Afghanistan. And it was only like two and a half hours difference from Afghanistan in in Berlin, so that was pretty cool. South Africa was the same time zone, um, yeah. so easier than if you're in Australia, for example. Exactly, like Australia, North America, these other places where we could have built things up from and could have been a headquarters. Um, it just it just really made sense as a hub mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to be, you know, fairly central in Europe. And Berlin in 2012 was like pretty affordable as well. Like it was actually competitively priced with Afghanistan in terms of like rent and all sorts of stuff, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's changed a lot in the last 10 years in Berlin. Yeah. <laughs> things, have, <laughs> things, have gone, things have gone up. But yeah, that, that's sort of how we, how we ended up there. Okay. So, uh, yeah, you mentioned a bit the other locations where you're located now and where you spread out basically after Afghanistan. But before we, we talk about that, I just had a question basically about Afghanistan, because as, as, uh, as of course, you know, uh, the situation over there uh, is uh, quite complicated right now with the Taliban that came back uh, in the summer or spring. I don't remember exactly, but uh, of uh, last year, I understand that you had to suspend your activities temporarily over there to just wait and see how things were going to turn out. And I just saw yesterday on, I think on LinkedIn and uh, maybe on your Instagram, I don't remember, but uh, that uh, you started collecting food or something uh, or, or at least started kind of working over there again. Can you tell me a little bit about how it's going right now over there? Sure. Yeah. Um, in August, the, the Taliban took took over the country and uh, that meant that all of our, it was it was really a, a period of insecurity and instability um, for, for everybody. Uh, a lot of our staff left the country at that point in, at that point in time, um, but we still had staff on the ground and we were all committed to just keep on going and we didn't, we didn't actually ever stop. 
we just had to stop programs at a certain time because there's a new government and then with a new government you need to then form new relationships and get new permissions for working. So we hired some staff in September and October and uh, we've been working hard on getting all of those permissions from the Ministry of Economy and Ministry of Education and the line ministries for the work that we do. And mm-hmm. um, right now, 95% of the population in Afghanistan don't have food security. That means that they're, they're literally almost the whole country is starving. There's 40 million people in, in the country and, you know, it's a, a big part of it is a lack of access to money. So even if people have money in the bank, they can't actually oh, pull yeah, it out yeah. of the bank. They're only allowed to get $100 a week out and they might need a lot more than that just to pay their rent and eat and everything. So it's a really complicated situation. So we started to do some food distribution to our students and their families. And we've okay. uh, distributed food for uh, over 500 people um, so far for at least a month, a month's worth of food. And uh, okay. we're, we're continuing to, to build that out. And we've got some remote sessions that are that are happening with our students in, in Afghanistan. And we just have to build it out from there but getting those permissions building those new relationships also with the the new afghan olympic committee where we've got in kabul our our facility is on and then we've got the other two skate schools in northern afghanistan and in in bumyan that's right yeah and the Bamiyan facility was just finished mid-august and then the taliban Uh. basically took over two days later (laughs) so Bummer, yeah. No, but it's great that you that you're able to um, keep um, participating over there, even if it's not through regular skate programs. At least you're helping out and and still participating. So that's great. Yeah, we just, I mean, we're we're committed in the long term to to Afghanistan, and we're really excited to to open up those schools again and and just see what is what is possible for for Skaterstan and Afghanistan into the into the future. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'd really uh, maybe we'll move our headquarters back to Kabul in twenty thirty two, as long as there's fast internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. at, at that point, probably it will be. But <laughs> all right. Um... So we mentioned the other locations. So you're now, uh, as we're speaking, you're um, so in Afghanistan. You're also in Cambodia, in South Africa. And I saw that you're spreading to other countries. I, I think I saw that you're in Jordan and Kenya and uh, I think Bolivia as well. That's right. Yep. So, uh, so yeah, tell me. Uh, and I think that's part, all part of uh, basically the, the new chapter that you're building on for, for the, this year to come and the next uh, years to come. Can you tell me about basically the, all the locations where you're spreading out as we're speaking and, uh, and how you intend to, yeah, just make it all happen? Yeah, um, we, you know, we want to use all of that experience of being born on the streets of Kabul and, and starting that, the, the project from something that the kids really were, were excited about. And it's something that has worked so well and worked then in South Africa and worked in Cambodia. And so we, we simply want to spread this globally as much as we, as much as we can. And yeah. for, the tw- uh, for the next 12 months, we've come up with a five-pronged strategy to, to do that. We want to try some new new things out. So firstly, we, we're doing something called the, the Innovation Fund, which is about shorter projects and smaller projects. Okay. 
and just being flexible. So now that we've got refugees from Afghanistan in different places in, in the US and in Belgium and Sweden and Australia, we're thinking about how they could be possibly involved in running programs with other refugees in those areas and just testing it out, just seeing if we can, instead of like building this massive skate school and all of the infrastructure and all of the, you know, these very big long-term projects that we've been used to doing, are there also some some shorter, smaller things that we can do? So that's the first strategy. The second strategy okay. is through Good Push. And the Good Push Alliance is a knowledge sharing network that we that we set up in around 2018. And mm-hmm. you know, it started with like 35 social skate projects, you know, a lot of them inspired by by Skaterstan and you know, growing at the time. We've now identified 600 social skate projects globally. That's incredible. There's 100 in, in Brazil alone. So it's, it's yeah, going absolutely crazy. <laughs> and we just want to spread the knowledge, everything that we know with all of these projects because we just don't see them as competitors mm. at all. It's like we want them to thrive. We want them to not make the same mistakes that we did. And mm-hmm. if we can help them grow, that's the idea of the, the Good Push Alliance. We've got an e-learning uh, platform as well where people can go on and go through different courses and help them understand different aspects of running a social scape project uh, successfully. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the stuff that we're into right now is um, there was also the Pushing Against Racism initiative that was, was launched last year. And um, there's pushing against racism awards that are that are happening uh, now, and there's also a refugee skate network that's uh, evolved as well. So that's really exciting stuff in terms of how can we grow all through also through the Good Push Alliance and all of its all of its members. And we did yeah, a yeah, we did a survey okay. of those social skate projects, and ninety percent of them were were interested in running some sort of skate stand curriculum. So we're just seeing how that can how that can all grow. And uh, mm. then there's public school partnerships in South Africa. We're uh, in Atlantis, uh, which is on the Western yeah. Cape. And there's a couple of schools that have skate parks at the schools. And so we're starting to run a little program together with the schools and we're seeing, can this be a pilot for doing something much, much larger, maybe with a Mm -hmm. Ministry of Education in a different country? Like how could there be skateboarding curriculum that we could develop together with the ministry that then is in all of the schools across the country potentially? So that's, that's, that's something that we're looking at. Then the fourth part is rebuilding in Afghanistan. So that's yep. this step that I uh, just talked about. Talked it a about, bit, yeah. And then the the fifth one is skater stand in a box. And again, Andrea Schutzenberger mm-hmm. from IU Ramps has is helping us out, and we're we're building like like a mini skater stand school. So it's simply like a shipping container that's fitted out to be like a classroom. And you can also then run skateboarding stuff outside. And then uh, you've got that space to link it with uh, educational opportunities for the, for the kids. And we want to really make it high tech and we've just built a prototype and we're going to test that out so maybe it'll be like a refugee camp somewhere in europe where we tested out first we don't we, we haven't quite got the location yet but the idea is to do a skater stand school in miniature and okay okay interesting 
how could that work? So that's that's all of the the five prongs of our expansion strategy over the over the next twelve months. Okay, and I, I think you mentioned on the website, or I saw it somewhere that you intend to to spread out to twenty different countries, or I think twenty different locations. So we want to have twenty oh, locations. locations. We want to have twenty locations in total by the end of twenty twenty two. Okay. Okay. So that'll be a, a pretty significant expansion for Skater Stand yeah. in one year. But we're also trying different things and we just want to see what, what works. And sure. there's so much, uh, so much opportunity. We do a, a survey of the social skate sector every year. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're starting to build a bit of a picture of what are the needs of all of these social skate projects and what are the best ways that they can grow. And I mean, as we can estimate at the moment, the total sector is only $10 million. And I mean, it's enormous across the mm -hmm. globe, all of these projects and all of the impact that it's having and all of the, the lives that it's changing of all of these kids all over yeah, the globe. Yeah. You know, how can we play a role in, in really investing in that and helping it, helping it all grow? Mm -hmm. Awesome. I have just a few last questions. So, okay, one of them was about the the recent documentary that won awards, uh, the Learning How to Skateboard in a War Zone, If You're a Girl documentary. I actually wanted to, to watch it uh, to kind of gather some information on Skatistan, but I couldn't find it. Uh, does that mean that it's not available yet? Or do, do, you, do you know... Unfortunately, it's only been released in the U.S., so it's available oh, in the it's okay. available in the in the U.S. We don't have control over where it's released. We really would love it to be available globally. Global, yeah, but eventually um, it will happen. I hope. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty pretty surreal to be at the Oscars in 2020. I think I saw a picture on your Instagram with like the the Oscar or something. It was a uh, it was funny. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was super fun to to be there with with Tony Hawk and um, yeah, a few few other. That's a bucket list moment for sure. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of the yeah the craziness that goes goes around all 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 of that. But yeah, no, definitely very uh, very memorable. Okay, and, and so so how did this whole project come about? Basically, did they approach you, or was it the other way around? And how long did the shooting take place? They invited me to its A and E network, which is a television channel in in the US, and um, they simply had a whole lot of uh, female executives at the top of the the programming, and they saw a book, skate the Skate Girls of Kabul, that was uh, released about Skaterstan, and they just thought, right. hey, you know, we'd love to do a movie about something like this. And I got excited by the fact that it was a whole lot of women that wanted to do it. Yeah, and then yeah. the idea was that there would be a woman producer, women, woman uh, director, female, you know, as much as possible. So at sure. that point, I was like, hey, if we can make this work, I think it's a cool concept and it could be a cool angle to see. And um, they came to Kabul on two different locations, uh, two different times. Uh, okay. It was just all focused in on the Kabul Skate School and our back-to-school program. So that's where the kids come for 
they do an accelerated learning program and it gets them back into the regular school system. So okay. they come with us, they come to, to Skater Stand for a year and then after a year they graduate and they can go straight into the straight into like the third grade or the fourth grade, even if they've missed grades one and two. Mm-hmm. They do all of that with us. So that's that's what the film's about. It's 40 minutes long and uh, we didn't give them that much access. <laughs> we basically said we'll give you like, I think it was probably a maximum of like eight days that we gave them oh, total, total really? access. Okay. So they really had to be, we wanted it to be a light touch in terms of not disrupting the school. Well, yeah, and yeah. It was really important to us that it wasn't like taking over in any way. And so it was just four days on one occasion and four days on a, on another. So um, okay. they did a pretty good job with the, the limitations that we, we placed on them. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the awards uh, speak for themselves, I guess. But uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully the movie will be uh, available. It has played at some film festivals in, in Berlin and some other capitals. So look out for it at film festivals. It's been put mm-hmm. on uh, television at different times in different places. So it was it played in Italy and played in Australia and then was available on demand. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a matter of uh, trying to track it down and looking out, looking out for it. Yeah, I'll definitely keep my eyes open for it because uh, I really want to see it. All right, so I have uh, two questions from friends of yours. Okay. So I'll have you listen to them in a second. But uh, just for people who are listening to this and who, who would want to maybe support Skatistan, what is a good way to help you out? I, I, get, uh, I know that on your website you can do donations. If people want to, I don't know, do volunteer work for you or stuff like that, what's the best way to help out Skatistan, basically? Yeah, the best best way to to help is to donate and spread the word about what we're what we're doing. We do have opportunities for for work that come up from time to time. But there's fairly limited volunteering opportunities. Yeah, we de- definitely follow us on on social media and um, let other people know because it's we really want to get everybody behind what we're doing. This is a This is something that a lot of people can connect to, you know, whether it's Mm -hmm. girls empowerment, whether it's education, whether it's even just purely skateboarding. There's lots of different uh, angles to get people interested in. So letting people know is uh, is super important to us. And uh, looking every every year, we run a campaign. At the at the moment, we've got a campaign running where we're trying to raise 1.5 million, and uh, I think yeah, we're, I that, we've got yeah. about 900,000 raised so far. So massive thank you to everybody that has uh, supported the the campaign so far, and it's gonna it's gonna help us with all of that expansion over the next mm-hmm. year so yeah look out for for skater stand where it uh, where it exists there's uh, we've got a big collaboration with vans at the moment so you can buy skater stand vans shoes and hoodies and stuff like that to represent oh i didn't i didn't see that is that available on the like their the vans website yeah, that's, or a, that's available or? through that's available through vans and uh yeah i'll check it out Lots of different um, co-brandings that we do from time to time that are yeah exciting and it's it's great you know wear a t-shirt spread the word. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> exactly. I just had one last question. Sorry, before uh, I have you listen to your friends. 
we talked, I mean, skateboarding has been at the genesis of all this. And so I was just wondering for you personally, what, what would you say is the kind of the best lesson and the most precious thing you've learned through or from skateboarding in, in your life? Well, I think it's about how the, how the skateboard makes you humble. It's something that you can't do perfectly. Yeah. And uh, that's the same as anything in our, in our lives. We've got to keep on striving and keep on trying to do things. And, you know, I, I think I was humbled within seconds the first time I stepped on a skateboard in 1980 and uh, I continue to be humbled by the by skateboarding today I went uh, went skateboarding on Sunday it was mm -hmm. like minus two and uh, just doing flat land at 47 years of age is is Tough. brutal yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. it's very very humbling So uh, I, I think that that's a, that's a really important element for people to have in their lives. And um, we don't need to do things perfectly. We don't need to be experts at things. We don't need to even be good at things. We can just do what we do what we can and do what we do. And um, there's always going to be people that are able to do something better than you and there's always going to be people that can't do things as as well as you and that's that's something that I I definitely learned from skateboarding. Awesome. Okay, so I won't tell you who who the people are. Uh I'll just have you listen to uh, so I have questions from two friends of yours. I'll have you listen to the first question. Hey Oliver, hey Quentin, this is Julian Dykmans in Berlin, and here's my question. So Oliver, you've been skating for about four decades now. I wonder, how do you keep it fun? And then also, what is inspiring for you today in skateboarding? Thanks, guys. Thanks, uh, thanks so much, uh, Julian, for the, for the questions. How, how do I keep it, keep it fun? Well, I, I think it's about uh, not setting unrealistic expectations and uh, just going with it. It's so rad to skate with your friends and, and share some time and basically just get out and be, get out and be active. I had a pretty big, um, pretty big ankle injury uh, around when I was about 20, 29. And so I've lived, lived with that for almost 20 years. And that, you know, really, really impacted my ability to to skate like I just couldn't it was my back foot and to pop was hard and then even just you know with nollies as well like the other way I couldn't I couldn't move my foot in the same in the same way it's your your right ankle it's uh, my right right ankle yeah and did, didn't you have surgery uh, again recently I had surgery uh, last year in in April so I've recovered from the surgery um, skateboarding again in um, in September And uh, okay. it's, I mean, it's so exciting to have like a greater range of motion. So yeah, I mean, I guess keeping it fun, part of it is like staying healthy, looking after your body, you know, that, that keeps it fun. It's fun when you, when you keep on, keep on going. And mm -hmm. uh, what inspires me in, in skateboarding at the moment? Today, yeah. I think how skateboarding is, you know, branching out. I'm especially inspired by women in skateboarding, girls being at a, you know, maybe the only person at a spot. That's really exciting to, to see because that wasn't a reality in the 80s or the 90s or even just, you know, 15 years, yeah, or 10 years even ago. Even not that long ago, yeah. 
So I, I find that super inspiring. And I think when it's going into new countries and then there's also, you know, it, it being more inclusive, mm-hmm. that's super inspiring to me because I think that skateboarding can do so much for so many people. It doesn't need to stay a white male sport for people exactly, from yeah. middle income to rich countries. Skateboarding is for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's a reality. How do we make that more of a reality? Absolutely. All right. So very last question from another friend. Okay. So if you were able to only listen to one more song, like, and then you'll die. So like, what would be the song you would listen to if you could only listen to one more song? Did you recognize the voice? That was Louisa, Louisa Menke. Yes, yes. Kind of a dark question, but uh, <laughs> yeah, interesting one. That's a tricky one, but I definitely like listening to Seek and Destroy by Metallica from Kill em All. That's a good one. Yeah, good choice. That's it for my conversation with Oliver Perkovich. To learn more about the amazing work Oliver and the whole Skatistan team are doing around the world, follow them on their Instagram account, at Skatistan. Go check out their website, skatistan.org, and donate to help them reach their goal of expanding to 20 different locations by the end of 2022. Also, keep an eye open for the Learning How to Skateboard in a War Zone If You're a Girl documentary, which should be available worldwide in the near future. Thank you for tuning in. See you soon for a new episode of Beyond Boards. Hey.